good to see everyone out this morning. Thank you for coming to church. So glad to have you back here again. Uh, a few now announcements before we uh, get started with our message for today and close out the book of Romans. Uh, one, uh, for those who served and took time out of their schedules to go downstairs and be with our children's ministry as part of our summer serve to relieve our regular volunteers, we want to say thank you. We sincerely appreciate you making the sacrifice to go down so that others could be able to come up and enjoy worship, and we're very grateful for that. Second thing, I want to make you aware of something that I came into recently as I visited a friend of mine who's a pastor down in D.C. Uh, he and his church um, have been doing this for a while. I didn't know it, but as I had a chance to visit with him, uh, he and some members of his church have been uh, looking for ways like Melissa to, to disciple their church, and they came up with a resource called the Daily Prayer Project, and, um, and may if you wouldn't mind putting it on the screen for me. There, and These are some of the different issues that they've released. Uh, they follow the church calendar, and it's to help you with daily prayer and worship. Uh, it includes some reflections on art. Uh, it has songs in it, and it follows the church calendar. So uh, it has Advent, Christmas, uh, Epiphany, uh, Lent, Easter, uh, Pentecost, and ordinary times. So it kind of follows that order and structure uh, as, as, you know, to pray through the year. And it has a Bible reading plan that takes you all the way through. So it, it's just a great resource that I thought, hey, listen, I want to make my church family aware. So if you're in it, you want some more reflection in your personal time, I think this is a great resource to help you uh, with that. And so I wanted to put that in your hands as well. Uh, last up, but not least, before we get into the text today, there is a textual issue uh, with the text that we're looking at today. I'm not going to address that at all. For those who know about that, uh, you're well aware to take a look at that for yourself uh, and come down where you come down on that. But we're going to preach the text today. So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, open it up to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And we're going to close out the book of Romans with the final three verses. And then if you wouldn't mind standing once you find it, that would be awesome. So here we are. We're going to pick up at verse 25, just three short verses. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God's blessing and presence upon our time together. Father in heaven, I ask you by your spirit to please help me to preach this message with the necessary power and with the appropriate affections. Lord, please use this message to bring glory to your great name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. We make these requests through our Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I was surprised this week to find out that even Chick-fil-A can be a dangerous place. <laughs> this past Wednesday, a woman parked her vehicle um, hoping to, to enjoy probably a number three, 12 count with some fries and a Sunjoy half, lemonade half, sweet tea. Uh, 
Maybe, maybe that's just me. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what she was looking to enjoy. But she was looking to enjoy some Chick-fil-A. She, she had her mind set on it. So as she parked, she got out of her car like we all do. And uh, she had her infant daughter in the back seat. And so she went to the back seat to, to unbuckle her daughter. Uh, and as she was in the process, process of doing that, what no, none of us wants to happen happened to her. Uh, a man approached her by the name of William Branch, who was about 43 years old. He had a stick in his hand, and he threatened her uh, because he wanted to obtain the keys to her car. And when he saw that her keys were on her waistband, he just forcefully snatched them from her and proceeded to get into the vehicle uh, in the driver's seat to leave with the vehicle there at Chick-fil-A. Of course, her response was to scream for aid, to which a team member by the name of Michael Gordon, who was a very young guy in his 20s, uh, responded, and he ran out seeing what was happening after hearing the scream and uh, entered into a physical uh, altercation with Mr. Branch. Uh, he forcefully removed him from the vehicle, uh, put him into a headlock, and it was like a wrestling move to me, like DDT'd him right into the ground. Uh, of course, Mr. Branch didn't like that, and he struggled to escape. It was like MMA right there in the parking lot. And uh, Michael kept securing the headlock on him and keeping his head bent and down on the ground. And finally, other Chick-fil-A team members saw what was going on, ran outside, surrounded him, at which moment he ceased to struggle. Of course, the Chick-fil-A manager called the authorities. The Okaloosa County Sheriff's deputies arrived and took Mr. Branch into custody. Uh, after the incident, the sheriff's office said this, a major shout-out to this young man for his courage. Uh, Matthew Sexton, who, who is the owner and operator of this Fort Walton Beach, Florida Chick-fil-A restaurant, said this, I am grateful for my amazing team member, Michael Gordon, who selflessly jumped in to intervene and help our guests. I couldn't be prouder of his incredible act of care. CNN, if you were looking for the article, listed it under this title, Chick-fil-A worker praised for helping a woman with a baby who was being carjacked, deputies say. When people do great acts, we praise them. We praise them when they do selfless acts to save others, and we even praise them when they show a superior skill. Think about this fall, what's going to happen in many living rooms and in the stands of many stadiums. There will be praise lifted up as players in the NFL do some dynamic plays and people shout and scream their praise. We even do it when we watch the Olympics and we see those who are elite athletes do feats that seem to us humanly impossible. What is praise? The theological word book defines it this way. Praise can be defined as an expression of approval, esteem, or commendation. My question for us today is, if we're willing to praise people when they do great acts, then why don't we praise God? As the writers go on to state, Psalm 148 says that the angels, elements of nature, animate and inanimate creation praise God together. One of the psalmists expresses the, the desire for all people to praise God because the praise of God is a great theme throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, the righteous, the godly, are characterized by praise for God. 
And so here we find ourselves at the end of the book of Romans and Paul lifts up his voice to join in this great never-ending chorus of praise that is being offered to God. He praises God for his acts and he praises God for his attributes. And those are my two points for today. First, we ought to praise God for his acts. Let's read the text again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. According to verse 26, God had commanded the disclosure of a mystery at a specific time in history that had been hidden previously from human understanding. And Paul says that this disclosure, at least at the time that he's living, is coming as he proclaims in others, the apostles, this gospel message. And he also lets us know that the prophetic writings had already been testifying toward Jesus even though it was hidden. And this is, Paul says, something that our human minds could have never conceived of on our own. One writer, in reflecting on what God had done in revealing this, said, the divine plan of redemption through Christ was conceived by God from eternity and kept secret through endless ages. God had a secret plan that he had now decided to make known. And Paul has unfolded it for us in this letter that God redeems sinful Jews and sinful Gentiles from facing his wrath on the last day through the crucified Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who sacrificed his life for our sins and whom God raised from the dead, as Paul says, for our justification. And God did this so that he could gift us with forgiveness of sins and his righteousness, which we receive this grace by faith in God through Jesus like Abraham did. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1 that as part of this mystery, as the Gentiles come in, we come in at an equal standing with the Jews in the people of God. Though the, Jew, the Gentiles have been talked about being brought in, the Jews didn't know that they were going to be brought in on the same standing and footing and equal status with Jews. It was a mystery that was revealed in the gospel. It's sobering to think that we would not know the way of God or the way of salvation had God not acted in human history through Jesus Christ and then reveal it by his spirit through his apostles. And this is no small thing for God to have decided to reveal this secret by his spirit as the believers who were on trial in the first century said and alluded to as much in Acts 4. On trial they said this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no friendship with the Father without trust in the Son. No Jesus, no salvation. And Paul says the scriptures were always pointing in this direction to God's Redeemer to come, who we now know as Jesus Christ. 
Uh, we see it in the very opening pages of Scripture when God, after interacting with humans who had chosen to not trust him and be disobedient to his word, said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The scriptures went on to predict the arrival of Jesus when God spoke to Abraham and he said to him, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The scriptures looked forward to Jesus when Moses prophesied to the people about one who would come after him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The scriptures anticipated Christ and his work when Isaiah, by the Spirit's guidance, penned these words. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, my, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And the Holy Spirit spoke of Jesus by the hand of David when he penned the words, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. As Paul says, the scriptures were always pointing toward Jesus, though it had been concealed from human minds until he was raised from the dead and God had issued the decree for it to be proclaimed to all nations, as we see commanded in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. And the reason why is because God had a goal in mind, which Paul tells us at the end of verse 26, to bring about the obedience of faith among Jews and Gentiles. And now here at the end of Romans, we come full circle back to the very beginning as we remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Now, there, there are several different views about how obedience and faith relate to one another in this, and scholars are divided, but I like what Dr. Garlington has to say here is I, I think he gets to the heart of what's going on. Here, Paul uses this ambiguous concept because he has two ideas in mind that he wants to get across in this one phrase. On the one hand, obedience, it is the obedience which is, it consists in faith, that is, that trust in Jesus is, view, is viewed as obedience or obeying the will of God. And on the other hand, it is the obedience which is the product of faith, meaning that our trust in Jesus helps us to obey his commands. One author put it this way, faith that results in obedience is not just a one-time instance, but a lifelong pattern. And the belief first exercised upon one's conversion is validated as one continues to believe and obey. See, God, as Paul has already said, helps us to obey the commands of Christ through the power and presence of his spirit in believers, as we saw in Romans chapter 8, with the goal of conforming us to the image of his son. And as you just heard in Melissa's presentation, you got to see how that is played out in real life, in Italian believers' lives. Paul says in response to that, we ought to praise God for his acts because God saves sinners through Jesus Christ 
and in his grace he has commanded for this good news to be made known to all nations. And we who are in this room and are believers, we have benefited because the gospel was shared with us. That's my first point. My second point, not only are we to praise God for his acts, but we are to also praise God for his attributes, for his attributes. If you look at the text, you'll notice that there are three attributes that Paul mentions in the text. He mentions God's power, he mentions God's eternality, and he mentions God's wisdom. He mentions his power, his eternality, and his wisdom. Again, as we consider these attributes, our minds are drawn back again to the, to the initial words of the letter of the Romans, specifically chapter 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So this past Christmas, NASA launched the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to allow humanity to have a better look at the universe, farther out and clearer images where we'll be able to see what we had not seen as clearly before. And the telescope has already produced some fascinating images and it's only been around for a little bit since Christmas. And you can see that right here. Maybe you'll put that up on the screen for me. And this is some of the things that we've seen in the universe. Now, as we look out in the depth of space, we might begin to wonder about how many stars and galaxies really exist out there when we begin to think about and say, well, what's really out there? One estimate and taken to a light and lights the most recent data and, and, and trying to estimate how many stars might actually exist in the universe, one estimate came back at one septillion. Now, for some of you, you're thinking like, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> Think of a one and then put 24 zeros behind it. To put it simply, that's a lot of stars. Now, when I consider our star, which we refer to as the sun and the amount of power that it gives off, and we start to think about the universe, it can become staggering. Now, for those of those of us who haven't been to science class in a while or haven't thought about it, just to put things in perspective, if you just remember, the Earth, uh, in comparison to the sun, you would have to, to stack up 109 Earths to get the width of the sun. You, you, you see where you live at and I live, where we're currently at in comparison to the sun. Another simple statement, the sun is really big. But what you might find fascinating for those who don't traffic in astronomy is the sun is not even the largest star that they've discovered. Let me show you what it looks like compared to some of the other things that are out there. The sun is up there in that little corner, and it looks like planet Earth compared to some other stars. Now think about this for a moment. Our sun has been burning, giving off heat and light both day and night. And that's at least been happening since humans have been on the planet, because we've been here to observe it. Now, when you multiply the amount of heat and light that has been expended by our star alone since humanity has been on the planet, to say the least, and then you multiply that times the number of stars that 
potentially exist in the universe, well, the number becomes so great the human mind can't even begin to fathom or appreciate that kind of power in any meaningful way. We might even say to use the word vast is an understatement. Now, here's a thought. What kind of power must God have to create all that power and to sustain it for this long? No wonder the prophet Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. To which God responded to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? But you want to know what I find even more mind-blowing than all of that? Is what we find in this text right here. The God who created the universe with unimaginable power has turned his resources to focus on you. Notice what the text says. Paul says, God, who has this unimaginable power, is able to strengthen you, and it's through the gospel. God, who has this power that our minds can't even imagine, is able through the gospel to supply you with the strength and the ability that you need to overcome any temptation and trial that you face in this life so that you remain faithful to Jesus. Paul says our God is omnipotent and he's willing to help you because he loves you. I believe that's praiseworthy. Not only is God powerful, but Paul goes on to say he's eternal. He's eternal. So I was sitting on my couch, on the couch at home with my son a, a, a few, few weeks ago, and we were talking, and we, I don't know what we were watching on YouTube, and I got to talking about how things have origins and beginnings and everything we know has a beginning. Of course, he immediately went theological on me and, and turned to me and was like, well, what about God? And I said, son, well, God is in a different category. God has never had a beginning, and God will never have an end. God has always existed, and God will always exist. And it is because of that truth that we can trust his promise when he says to you, I will give to you eternal life. God can't keep you living if he's not around. But because God always exists, you can enjoy life with him forever and he can keep that promise because he himself is eternal. Who else do you know that's eternal? That's why I believe John Feinberg said it right when he said there's none like him. Not only is God powerful and God is eternal, but God is also wise. God is powerful, God is eternal, and God is also wise. Paul has already praised God for his wisdom at the end of Romans 11. After considering the plan of redemption, Paul had to break out and praise because he couldn't contain himself because of, in light of what God had done, he had to just break out and start praising right then. He had to have a, a personal praise party. But Paul says, let me explain to you this plan of redemption that that God has taken Israel's unbelief and and used it as an opportunity to open the door for the, the nations to come in and become part of the people of God with an equal standing by faith in the Messiah. And then God is going to take that believing, those believing Gentiles who've responded from the nations and then use those same Gentiles to be the means by which he's going to bring in Israel and turn them from unbelief to belief so that at the end, both Jews and Gentiles are all blessed and part of the people of God. 
And Paul said, in light of that, when I think about the fact that no one told God how to do it, I can't help but marvel at God's wisdom. That's him in redemption. But there's something else in the text that we ought to marvel at, and that is God's wisdom in creation. Jeremiah said it like this. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And Isaiah, by the God's writing, said this, who has measured out the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the great span, with the span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the rhetorical answer there is no one. No one. Have you considered the world around you and what exists and what you interact with and see on a daily basis and thought about that that was God's idea? I just took a few moments to consider a few things to, to take into account. And maybe you hadn't thought about it recently, but let me just remind you of some of God's ideas around you. God was the one who came up with the idea of water. He came up with the idea of the water cycle. God came up with plants. He even came up with you. God came up with fusion. God created molecules. God created light and heat. God came up with the idea of gravity. God came up with the idea of animals. God came up with the idea of music, and he came up with the idea of math. God was the one who designed gems and, and gold and iron. God was the one who came up with the idea of work and family and the, the taste of food and communication and dirt and snow and the atmosphere and the moon and galaxies and stars and planets and, well, I could just go on. And all we're doing is simply discovering what God had already made. We're not making up anything. We're just discovering what he's already done. And what fascinates me about this is that when God created the universe, no one came and sat in his council and laid out a blueprint and said, this is how you make a universe. This is how you make people, and this is how you make the world work. God did it all by himself. We call that superior skill. Have you contemplated God's wisdom lately in both redemption and creation? And if you have, have you often thought about how people treat God? We have his word, but we don't trust him enough to obey it. We might not ever say that in public or tell anyone that, but we don't believe that God is wiser than us or that he makes better decisions than we do. Because if we did, we'd obey what he would say, and we'd do it. So instead, we decide to rely on our reasoning and our ability to make decisions apart from his counsel. But could it be possible in light of creation and in light of redemption that God might be wiser than you, me, or anyone else for that matter? Do you trust God's wisdom to order your relationships according to his word? Do you trust God's wisdom enough to order your finances by what God has said or alter your life plans based on what God's word says? Or do you still think you're smarter than God? Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and I would ask you to consider, is that the wisest choice? Now, you might reply, well, look, Jesus is not a settled issue, so don't even go there, brother. So might I recommend a book to you about the bedrock facts of Christianity? It's called The Bedrock of Christianity by Justin Bass that deals with the facts or what are agreed upon by all scholars about the life of Jesus. 
After you read that book with the Bible in hand, I would ask you to reconsider my question. Is rejecting Jesus really a wise choice? Brothers and sisters, for those who are believers in this room, Paul has said God is eternal. God is all powerful and God is wise. And in light of that, he is worthy of praise for his attributes. Let me conclude with the story. People magazine recounts the events for us of a life-defining moment in the life of Private Desmond Dahl. Some of you probably remember the story. He had served as a medic in Guam in the Philippines before going into the battle at Okinawa. Uh, Dahl had deployed with the 307th Infantry of the 77th Infantry Division. Infantry Division, thank you. And that was back in the summer of 1944. And, 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 and in his deployment, part of that put him in the bloodiest battle in World War II's Pacific Theater. And all he had to protect himself, as the writer puts it, was his Bible and his faith in God. See, he, he was a devout Seventh-day Adventist, and he was a conscientious objector, and Doss had enlisted as in a medic because he never wanted to carry a weapon and would be put in a position to take someone else's life. So he refused to, to carry a rifle. Well, on the day of these events, the fighting had taken place on what we might describe as a, 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 the nightmarish uh, Maida escarpment in April of 1945. The battlefield was located atop this 350 sheer cliff. And upon that cliff, it was fortified with a network of uh, Japanese machine gun nests and booby traps. And the escarpment, which had been nicknamed, as the movie is called, Hacksaw Ridge, was called that because of how treacherous and steep the cliff was. But this was key to winning the battle in Okinawa. Now, the mission was thought to basically be nearly impossible to win. So when Dawson's battalion had ordered the retreat, the medic refused to leave his fallen comrades behind. And under heavy gunfire and artillery fire, Doss repeatedly ran into the kill zone. And he carried one soldier at a time to the edge of the cliff and single-handedly lowered them down. One by one, again and again, he put himself in danger to save the lives of others. And this is interesting because during World War II, Medics were especially targeted to demoralize the other troops, so he was in even greater danger, danger than the, those who were around him. And each time he saved a man's life, he would pray this prayer in his own words. He said this, Lord, please help me to get more and more, one more until there are none left, and I am the last one down. By the end of the night, after hours of excruciating labor, of saving the lives of others, he has been estimated to rescue 75 men. He says he thinks he only saved 50, but those who were around him said, no, it was closer to 100. So they decided to split the difference and say, we'll just go with 75. Doss said this, when you have explosions and bursts so close, you can practically feel it and not get wounded up there. When I should have been killed a number of times, I know who I owe my life to as well as my men. And that's why I tell this story to the glory of God, because I know from a human standpoint, I should not be here. He ended up serving two more weeks before being wounded by shrapnel from a grenade. And despite his injuries, he continued to, to bandage up others who were on the battlefield until his arm was broken by Japanese fire. He, of course, received the Medal of Honor from President Truman on October 12, 1945. And 
Mel Gibson, if you had a chance to see the film, directed this. And in Venice, when they showed this at the film festival, at the end of it, it was given a 10-minute standing ovation. Why? Because when people do great acts, we praise them. 2,000 years ago, another war was being waged. Sin, Satan, and death had humanity pinned down with no escape in sight. The, sca the casualties were great. It was a one-for-one -one loss. Humanity had signaled the retreat and all seemed hopeless under the shadow of death. Humanity had fallen into sin, but God refused to leave humanity behind on the battlefield. And at just the right time, Christ appeared in human history and Jesus walked out onto the field of battle all alone. He was unarmed, no weapon in hand. All he carried was a cross and his wounds that had been given to him for our healing and bearing that cross. He shed his blood and gave up his life and defeated sin and Satan. And early on Sunday morning, he got up alive and walked out of the grave and defeated death for all of us. No wonder the psalmist says, has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others that he has redeemed you from your enemies. See, I believe that the songwriter, the hymn writer got it right where the writer said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Brothers and sisters, God is worthy of praise for his acts, and he's worthy of praise for his attributes. Let us pray. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, Jesus, to receive the praise of all nations, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and if you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. Please receive the praise and adoration of your people and may it be acceptable in your sight. And please in just a moment receive these gifts from our hands as signs of our hearts that we love you and we are yielded to you to serve your purposes in the world. Help this local church to participate in your kingdom agenda for your glory and for the good of mankind. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. In just a moment the ushers are going to come to take up your offering. We're going to give you a moment if you haven't had a